So we keep on keeping on. Hey, little humans. I'm Norma Jean. Welcome to Stay Wild, the podcast about how to keep your quirks in the wondrous world. This is episode number nine, and today we're talking to Bryn Obeyed, who's a middle school educator, and she gets into a lot of social-emotional learning, which is really how compassion is taught nowadays in schools, so it's really interesting work. I read one of my toast poems. Today's episode is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. I'm a singer, songwriter. All of my music is... uh, Uh, the podcast music. (laughs) I hope you like it. And I post an original Daily Doodle cartoon. I have some shirts in my cartoon. You can see it all at njloves. That's NJ like Norma Jean, njloves.com. Let's get to the show. All right, little humans, I'm here with Bryn Obeyed. Hi, Bryn. Good morning, Norma Jean. So Bryn is a middle grades educator, and she's a social-emotional learning enthusiast. She's also a long-term Bali expat. So how are you doing, Bryn? I'm wonderful this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome to Stay Wild. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what is a social-emotional, what it, what that is. What's social-emotional learning? Okay, well... So that, that's a social-emotional. Yeah, <laughs> some people call it social-emotional learning, SEL for short. It's also called character development. Okay. Um, it's kind of a buzzword right now in education. Mm. I think that's been rising for the past 10 years, but in the last five years, I think it's really um, had some traction in the community. And basically what it means is that for the children growing up in this generation, it's it's going to be more important to integrate what some educators call soft skills. I call them necessary skills. Like life for skills? For life. Okay. You know, right. like um, things like how to develop empathy, peaceful conflict resolution, how to deepen your relationships. And I think piggybacking on that idea is also mindfulness in education. So things like meditation, yoga, um, how to coping strategies for stressful situations. And so those two things married together makes um, a really interesting uh, concept for research developers and curriculum writers to to build upon in the in the curriculum. So some places are doing SEL learning as its own subject area, and some places are just integrating it into the natural everyday rhythm of the classroom. And it's been really successful. That's awesome. So I think it's it's one of those things where you know we're here in Bali, we're we're living the Bali life. We're coming at you live from my garden. So if you hear if you hear mama dog barking or you hear the wind, um, that's what it is. There might be some ducks quacking by later. Um, but what's interesting, I think that when you take your life outside the box a little bit, there's a lot of people that are into alternative education, right? Mm -hmm. So whether that's mindfulness or whether it's compassionate or like, um, nonviolent communication, but it's, it's so interesting because you're actually applying that in the classroom. Yes. So what are some things specifically that, that that means and how do people develop differently when they're given these skills? Right. So, you know, initially when I moved to Bali, I wasn't into the social emotional learning community yet. I actually stumbled upon the concept when I found a need, a real life living need in my own classroom to help my students build these skills. In my room, we have, you know, 20 to 25 kids per class, and they were from all walks of life. You know, we have a lot of Indonesian citizens, but we also have students from South Africa and Japan and Korea, America, and all over the world. Yeah, because you taught at a school here in Bali. Yeah. So there's, it's quite a, it's quite a, like a mix. It's quite a champur, which is mix in Bahasa Indonesia. Yes. But it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's when you're living in the West, right? There's a, there's a homogeneity, right? Everyone is the same a lot of the time. And they have a lot of the same background in terms of socioeconomic or cultural or whatever, but in terms of, of expat life and even with Indonesians mixed in, like it must be completely different. Well, I think that it depends on where you're coming from in America. Um, I've taught in classrooms in America that were completely heterogeneous. I mean, real mixes, but they were all still Americans Mm -hmm. for the majority. Mm -hmm. So whether it was mixing socioeconomic backgrounds or races or creeds, a lot of the underlying thread that held everybody together was the American culture. Mm. But in this situation in Bali, um, even though the classroom, you know, looks 
racially and ethnically different. The, the difference is, is that they are actually from different countries and different cultures. And that it was a completely different ballpark. Um, I think that the children that were following their families to Bali were coming because their family had experienced some sort of upheaval. So there were several families that escaped natural disaster, families of divorce, families that lost a parent, diseases, traumas, accidents. And here in Bali, we have our own share of you know, unfortunate incidences. And these children were all coming together. Mm. Some of them spoke the language. Some of them didn't. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to function and, and hopefully thrive. And in the situation I had, a lot of them just weren't. I mean, when you're eight years old, what coping skills do you have really for major life events? So I thought they need more. Yeah. Yeah. They, they need more. I mean, we're an outdoor school. We have yoga classes. We have gardening classes. We have, um, two arts and all sorts of PEs and, and playtime all day long, mm. but it still wasn't helping the students solve their conflicts, resolve their traumas, experience empathy, mm. understand the difference between what a bully is and what a mean moment is. And their parents also didn't have that language. So I said, there's got to be something out there, like a cool curriculum that I can help to implement that would take our students farther along this road. I thought I was in a microcosm of need. And as it turns out, this was a thing. Yeah. This was a thing. Like, our <laughs> real, I was like, hello, world. Like, look at all this research being done in these universities that were getting onto it. And I was like, oh, I, sign me up, man. I was raising my hand um, from the get-go. I was like, this is what I want to do. Yeah, that's so interesting because, you know, there's a lot of – when you're talking about a lot of alternative activities, right, like gardening and yoga and arts programs, sometimes it's – I mean, it's great to have those programs and they're so enriching. But a lot of the time it's – if you don't have – if you don't get deep into that emotional space – no matter how much like watercolor you do, you're not yeah. going to move through it. Yeah. And look, their parents were spending long periods of time all day out at, you know, different yoga studios and retreat studios in town workshopping their emotions to get through it themselves. And the children were just coming to school every day and they weren't getting any kind of professionally led help on moving through their emotions and their experiences. Um, no, you know, I hold space as a teacher, but it wasn't that emotional, metaphysical, purposeful space holding, you know, to let the children work through their emotions like their parents were getting. Yeah. So how, you know, their parents were here to heal. What about the kids? How, you know, how do we help them? Yeah. It's um, so interesting. Cause yeah. and we're here in Ubud Bali, like I said, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of touchy feely woo woo industry. It's become a big yoga hub. Yes. There's a lot of retreats here. Mm. There's a lot of yeah, mindfulness, I guess. And so it's, it's so interesting because, you know, people come who have kids who move here, um, or who come, you know, for a year or whatever. And it's one of those things where it's not, I mean, it's so apparent, but then it's not, you know? Yes. Yes. And I think one of the other things that we really need to pay attention to living here in Ubud and any expat anywhere in the world mm. is the concept of third culture people and cross culture people. I use the word people um, in, in the educational community. The coined phrase is kids, third culture kids and cross culture kids. But I say people because in our community and many expat communities, we're adults still experiencing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, a, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, third, so the definition, let's get clear on what yeah, we're Let's get up in there. So the definition of a third culture kid is um, a child of two parents that are different ethnicities being raised in a culture that is neither one of those ethnicities or those countries. So, for example, a child living here whose mother is Indian and father is Japanese being born and raised here in Indonesia, in Bali. Okay, so it's, it's one parent, two parent third culture. Yes. So it's not two parents, one country moving somewhere else. Uh, no, exactly. So oh, my okay. American mom and my American dad bringing me to Bali is right. not enough. You have to have language, cultural influence from a homeland coming from one parent, a different homeland, language, and cultural experience 
from the second parent combining to make a child being raised in neither of those those home countries or cultures or languages. Oh right. That's so, real. That's yeah, a lot of that's a lot of things happening. It's a lot happening. That's a big crossroads. And that's more than fifty percent of my students, Norma Jean. Wow. In my classroom. They're wow. speaking four languages. Their mother's language, their father's language, um, their Indonesian and then English. Yeah. If English wasn't one of their parents' languages. Um, wow. to learn in. And that's just like normal. That's right. just everybody's There was a bit of a hair jam. flip there. <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, for those of you, exactly. That's like, just Tuesday afternoon for most of my students. And then there's something called the cross-cultural kid. Okay. Who um, would, I would describe as someone who was born and raised in a culture, mm-hmm. but functions in their culture at home is different from the cultural and society where they're growing up. Okay. So that would be the two parent, one country, two parent, one country, but living and working and going to school in a country that's different from their home country or opposite. So a lot of my Indonesian students born and raised here in Bali, they would call themselves Balinese. Mm -hmm. They are functioning in a society of mostly Westerners. They're Mm -hmm. going to a Western school. They have Western friends. Um, their teachers are Western, et cetera. They're considered cross-culture kids, even though they're living in their home country. Wow. Right? Another example would be um, a family who is first-generation immigrant, let's say, in America. Yeah. um, Let's say a Chinese family moves to, you know, New Jersey in America to give their children a Western shot at education and opportunity. Yeah. And so in the house, they speak Mandarin, they're eating, and um, they're... Right, they're eating kanji. Right, and they're having dumplings. (laughs) Yeah, the grandmother still only speaks Chinese, you know, and and he has a Chinese... the, the son has Chinese name that they use in the house. And then the son leaves the house and goes to school with a Nike t-shirt on, speaks English and runs around with all of his local New Jersey friends. Right. Um, and that's also a cross culture. Okay. So that makes up pretty much about a hundred percent of the students that are at the school where I teach here in Bali and the studies on the effects of how they develop into full grown up people is really interesting. Yeah. How do you how do you create your own personal identity mm-hmm. when you've got all of these different aspects coming together that make you where you're identifying mostly with people or a place when when you and I were growing up and coming into a, an adulthood where these children don't have a people or a place to identify with which to identify once they become 18 you know, Indonesia is not going to let them live here legally um, as natural citizens. Right. They won't feel at home in their home country anymore. Yeah. You know, where, where do they fit? Where, where do they fit into the world? No, it's, it's so interesting. You know, even as an adult, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently and, you know, she was saying, I'm not a traveler anymore and I don't, Feel, I don't want to be around backpackers. I don't want to be around tourists. I don't want to go back to the States where I'm from because no one there understands what's mm-hmm. going on for me. Like how I've lived my life for seven years. I'm actually an expat and it's a whole different culture. There's a whole yes. different culture around this. And I think it's, it's one of those things that's so interesting because I have a few friends that grew up as third culture kids or cross cultural, cross culture kids who traveled a lot as kids and who have that worldview. And there's not one specific creed that they subscribe to in terms of, in terms of this is their people, but their people, it's more individualized, I find. So it's more like, you know, these aren't my people because we're from the same town or we're the same religion or we're the same color. We speak the same language. These are my people because I have a unique and personal bond with each one of them. Mm -hmm. Is that... It's it's going to have to become what um, a cross culture kid or, or a third culture kid identifies with because mm. we don't have a tribe that is from one location that sticks together. So their identity is going to have to develop first of all from the inside out mm. instead of the outside in. Ah, and so for most children, mm-hmm. like psychologically, mm-hmm. you identify from the outside in. Yes. Okay. You identify first by your um, family mm-hmm. dynamic, right? So, and then you start to identify with your community outside of that. And then you grow up and you're like, I know who I am and I know where I'm from. And then you can go off into the world Mm -hmm. and as a whole person and you can experience changes and things that are more. But you have that grounding foundation. got those roots. Yeah. Yeah. But third culture people, they don't have that. So you have to identify from the core of yourself 
this is who I am. This is what I know. These are my values. And then when you open your eyes, no matter what's going on around you, you're stable from inside. Right. Wow. And that must be really, I mean, especially for children, that's, yes. that's a big ask. It's a big ask and it's not what their parents experienced in life. Mostly. Right. Cause their parents probably grew up with the roots. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They identified with a family unit first, then their community unit, and then they went out into the world. And for their children, it's going to be opposite. They're going to identify as a human on the inside first, their own values, and then they're going to adjust to their community and their, their surroundings. It's going in the reverse. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like one of those things that is more work in the beginning, but pays off in the end. Yes. Right. Cause I find that a lot of people who have grown up that way or who have lived that way as an, as an adult, as a young adult, or even, you know, mid thirties, forties, fifties, there's a consciousness and choosing your life and having to, there's a, how do I explain this? There's like a, like you're, you're put up against, you know, you're, you're confronted yes. with who you are. Mm -hmm. You have to actually decide that because it's not, you don't have a fallback. There's no automatic. Well, I'm, you know, from this town. I'm, I look like this. Other people who are in my family who are in my community look like this. They speak this language. We have these traditions. You don't have that. So you're, it's much more confronting, but on the back end of that, you know who you are. Yes, exactly. You don't have to look back to your tribe, to your country and their values and their culture and their language to know what you like or what's going to work for you. You know who you are. And wherever you go, there you are. So there, you're never lost. Um, whereas in the reverse, you know, people will come from a certain area where their roots are and then they'll go out into the world and they'll experience things and they'll take it, but they'll say, Ooh, that's, I don't like that. That's, I don't think that's right because Mm. it's not what I'm used to. And then they can just make their own personal little judgments and have takeaways and, and change things. But then when they go back home, if that's where they feel they fit in, Mm -hmm. then they will feel home coming back. Yeah. But people like me and you and some of our friends, yeah. (laughs) when we return, (laughs) we're like, what, where am I? It's like a square peg in a round hole again. Yeah. It doesn't feel like, Oh, now I'm back where I belong. It's like, well, I've landed somewhere. Yeah. I don't know that I necessarily belong. There's a lot of sidewalks. (laughs) It's so funny because here in Bali, there's, there's the infrastructure is a lot different. So you don't walk as much as you would necessarily in the West and people actually think it's the opposite. But when you're somewhere that's much more developed, a lot of that infrastructure is actually, it can be really comforting because things are functional, but also it can feel very isolating because it's, things are built up and you're not connected to nature in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. You really have to go searching for that. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, one time when I had returned to the States and I hadn't been there in a very long time mm-hmm. and I didn't feel, I mean, home was not home. I just couldn't relate to anything that was going on around me. The consumerism, the commercials, the the noise level. Mm. I mean, just the sheer volume of life in America. Mm. And I had to run away to the river and I had to float down the river in a tube <laughs> for like four hours, you know, and really connect with nature before I was like, okay, I can go back to the house again and try uh, try one more time. Um, to, to feel comfortable, to settle because it just wasn't happening. Yeah. It's so interesting how once you unplug, you know, it's like, it's the same thing, you know, and if you're living in the West, there's also little things you can do, like, you know, not look at your phone after dark and Mm -hmm. things like that to really kind of connect back in. But when you're living somewhere where things are less developed, um, there's definitely, you you see how things did develop in the West and, but you also feel more, more like you have more of a choice about it. Which is interesting, you know, because in the, in the States, especially if you're in an urban environment, there's a lot of concrete around you mm-hmm. and you don't realize that that's not actually, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, humans didn't live like that. Right. And evolutionarily, we may not have caught up yet. Yes. Um, so you've been abroad for a long time. Yes, I have. You've been abroad for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get into that space a little bit. Sure. Um, so you were a teacher in the States. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes and no. Okay. So um, my journey is not a straight line. And no, no one's our journey, journeys are not, especially <laughs> on this show. It's it's interesting and creative. I started with my on my international journey actually before I graduated university. Mm-hmm. So I did study abroad in Italy, and I Ooh. and I had some yeah some travel experiences that were long term that were really um, exciting and exceptional. And when I returned to the states, 
I worked for an educational company that mm-hmm. focused on the college admissions process. So I was working a lot with secondary students on helping them prepare for college, like essays, take those and- tests, and and prepare for their interviews and how to find the right school for them and and all of that. Because that can be really intimidating. It, it's it's amazing. And where I was in this in the country, mm-hmm. there were a lot of immigrant families who gave up everything in their lives just so their children could have an American university experience. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of those families, nothing less than the Ivy Leagues were going to be acceptable. And there was an immense amount of pressure on these kids to really make the most of of their experience. So it was a priority for this community. And so I wasn't working in a school. I was working for an educational company. Right, right. And and that's what I did for a few years. And it was very rewarding. Um, But I, I... you know, I was going into the schools to do some some classes and meet with some of these um, teachers and parents and mm-hmm. students. And I saw a really disturbing trend, Norma Jean. I saw parents bringing lawyers into parent-teacher meetings. I saw, you know, conflicts that were happening with, with students that were 14 years old. Lawyers? Yes, lawyers. Because perhaps, and this is just as a perhaps, I'm not saying this happened. It did, but maybe, <laughs> but I won't, <laughs> you know, just as an example, you know, this, this child who was usually very high achieving went through something difficult and dropped off a little bit as sometimes happens. And it, an assignment went awry, like a science project, for example. Right. And the science project was a big part of the grade. And even though the teacher called the house and sent letters, emails and, yeah. and gave the student extra time, the student didn't turn anything in, or if they did turn it in, it was very minimal. Right. And so the teacher still gave them credit, but it wasn't a lot of credit mm-hmm. where he or she should have just given them, you know, a zero, zero grade, or right. this is America. Um, and so it affects their score. And then the parents bring a lawyer in and say, you've ruined my child's chance at, um, at a university. This has ruined their life. We're bringing our lawyers. We want to contest this. We'll take you to court if we need to civil court. Wow. Um, we want your job. We want to review up your license. We want, we want to start legal proceedings that would, you know, ruin you basically. Wow. And all that needed to happen was a conversation. Yeah. But like I said, some of these families, they gave up everything. So, you know, when you see a roadblock, you sometimes you respond in that way because you have triggers and it's it seems like it's, you know, you've ruined everything has right. been compromised that you came here for. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this. This is not, <laughs> this is not my idea of education. And I started looking for something else. Mm. And I ended up in the Northern Marianas Islands for two years, mm-hmm. which was very unique, wonderful experience. Mm-hmm. I lived on the island of Saipan. Yep. And I worked at a public school there. And then I found my way to Bali after that. And I've been teaching and living in Ubud for six years. Wow. Yes. Okay. So Saipan, let's talk a little bit about that. So for those of you stay wild listeners who are at home, Saipan is an American territory, kind of like Puerto Rico or Guam. Mm-hmm. Correct. So they have a lot of American rights, but they're not uh, but they don't get to vote. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. Yes. So, but they get a lot of like, you know, they get all the same federal money. It's like the schools are in the, in the U S department of education. Yes. Okay, cool. Yes. So for a lot of teachers, that's actually, you know, if you are an American teacher, like to accredited to teach in a public school, mm-hmm. you could go to Saipan. Absolutely. And I recommend that you do that because <laughs> every year they recruit, um, teachers to, to fulfill some of those spots so that they can bring modern technology and teaching strategies to the community. Because when okay. you look around in the community, you don't see a lot of mainland American people living there. Okay. It's native island cultures mixed with um, some Chinese that emigrated there for job opportunities decades ago. And the islands also changed hands several times. There's a lot of Japanese there because mm-hmm. the islands used to belong to the Japanese before okay. World War II. Um, and also the Germans, the Spanish also had a hand in that in the colonization times. So what, so it seems like it's, it's definitely mixed. It's Asian. It's Asian and Pacific Islander. Okay. Um, what passports is, do they have? That is the feel. They have a, an American passport, but it is special. It's CNMI and outlying U.S. outlying territories status for the oh, citizenship. Right. Yeah. Cool. Wild. And what are the, I mean, like, so you went over there, you were like, I just want to like, I'm young. I'm, I'm a teacher. I want to like, do this. You went to Saipan. Yeah. What was that like? 
wild. Yeah. It was wild. <laughs> well, I this mean, is stay wild. So. The, the <laughs> island was, it's like eight miles by 15 miles. You, If you're oh, an tiny. athlete, you can run around the whole thing. It's basically like a sandbar in the ocean. I mean, oh. it's um, it was incredible. There was a lot of World War II artifacts all around the island. It's rich in history. Um, it's been fought over. So the culinary influences and the language influences are really interesting. What is that food like? Because the food is phenomenal. I mean, war is terrible for people, but it's great for food. Oh. You know, I mean, you get a lot of different influences. There's the Spanish, the Japanese, the German, and then, of course, the Pacific Islander okay. uh, influences. So you get a lot of, like, taro and ubi from the Filipinas, and then you've got the local chamorro, what they do with the coconut and their fish and their, you know, their sauces. And then you get spices from the Chinese, and you mix together, and it's just a beautiful rainbow of tastes and smells. Wow. Amazing. Uh, utterly amazing. Cool. Yeah. And so what, what, what was it like teaching there? I mean, in terms of the, like, did you have a regular schedule? What were the kids like? Did they have a lot of the same uh, challenges that people in the mainland America has? Yeah. Um, some same and some different. Um, teaching there was wild. My school was large, but it was very overcrowded as some American schools are also experiencing. Um, you know, the island is so tiny. The school was built for 700 kids and I think it had like almost 1,400 students. We were almost at double occupancy Wow! at the time. They've yeah. since built other buildings and relieved some of that. But the school is right on the beach. Wow. Like our, our school is on the sand. Oh, wow. And there's this world-class view right out the back. And you just sit. You can sit on a picnic table outside near our cafeteria and just... Uh, do people swim on their lunch break? Um, we put... There's like a, a gate from... Because I was in the middle school, so we wanted to prevent our kids from yeah, like, okay. running into the ocean in the yeah. middle of the day. So there was a boundary <laughs> there. But there are gates like open, like after school. Yeah. You could go through the gate and just run into the ocean. Or you could walk... I used to paddleboard to school sometimes. Wow. Like just from my little apartment down the street, just yeah. paddleboard in and come in on the sand and just walk right into my classroom. Um, it's amazing. It right out. Right, right there. You, it's an indoor outdoor campus. So the, the classrooms are closed, but the campus is open. There's no walls around the whole structure. So yeah. you're just walking on the grass and the sand. So we get like crabs in our classrooms or coming, coming down the walkway at school. Helitais, which are monitor lizards. That was our school mascot. They'd run okay. in through the classroom once or twice a year. Okay. Um, on geckos, all kinds of critters and stuff. Cause okay. it's like indoor outdoor. Wild. Yeah. Really amazing. Now the people. Um, as gorgeous as they are, you know, the island is small mm. and, you know, after the war, people really forgot about it. So the socioeconomic status of a lot of the people there, it's just rough living. Mm. It's rough living. So there's a lot of people on welfare. There mm. are some drugs, there's alcohol abuse. Okay. And so the population that I worked with largely was what I would call high risk. Okay. Um, really big hearts, but you know, there's a lot of poverty. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're talking about such a small place, right, there's not a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, what do people do if it's their home? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so a lot of times, you know, we were, there weren't working phone numbers for students. I had to make home visits if I wanted to talk to their parents, lots of adult responsibilities falling on the shoulders of young teenagers okay, and things like that. So there was, there was a lot of that going on, but um, also a lot of warmth, Yeah, you know, not just from the weather. Just, you know, the hearts of the people are just huge, mm. huge. And the culture is rich and fascinating. Yeah. No, I, I know a couple of people who've been. I haven't been yet. Mm. So getting back to, okay, so you were there for two years. Yes. And then did you come back to the States? I did not. Okay. I went right from, uh, right from Saipan to Bali. I had found a school in Bali that... I really resonated with even before I left for Saipan Okay, and the school had said, yes, we're ready. We're willing come over. This is going to be great. And then they kind of retracted. They said, actually, it's really kind of rustic out here and you're very young and we're just not sure that you really know what you're getting yourself into. Right. And we're worried that you're going to come out and then go, Oh God, no, I can't do this. And then leave. Oh, right. And so okay. they, they went with, they like, we found a teacher. She's already here in Bali. She's a little bit older. We're going to go with her, but keep us in mind. Right. Um, that teacher never actually showed up, not even for one day Oh right. Uh, at, okay. the, at the school in Ubud. Um, but I was already contracted uh, in the Marianas. And when I was done my contract in Saipan, I checked in with uh, Ubud again and they were like, you know, we are, we're fully staffed. And then 
I think a month later, they were like, hey, we're not. <laughs> right. <laughs> Our teacher fell in love and she's moving across the world. Can you interview? And and so I did. I'd never even been to Bali. Mm. Um, I didn't know anyone out here. Mm-hmm. It was just calling. And us expats that live out here, we know if Bali calls... There's no refusing her. No, no. It's very interesting, the dynamic in, in Bali. There's a lot of transientness as a community because I've lived in a couple of countries. And uh, in terms of expat communities, they're not always as transient as Bali is, mm-hmm. right? Because Bali, it's right. a big vacation spot. People come for a week. People come for three weeks. People come for three months. People come for a year. And then they end up staying and building a house or whatever. But like I lived in South Korea, for instance, mm-hmm. and there's, you know, everybody's on one-year contracts. Yes. So make people, most people don't stay more than three years, but really nobody's there for less than a year. Right. So it's definitely a different dynamic and there is a lot of upheaval and and transientness in that. Um, so tell me a little bit about the school you're at now. Um, and then we'll move more into social emotional. Yeah. (laughs) So the school I'm at now is called Palangi school. Mm -hmm. It's in Ubud. It's Mm -hmm. one of only two schools that would be considered international schools Mm -hmm. or style schools that it would be considered within Ubud. Mm -hmm. And it's, small in in structural size um we go from tiny tots up to grade nine but and we have you know a little over 200 students i think or about 200 students in the area um and we just and uh it's it, we're not an international school technically speaking because of license agreement issues um however we have a very international population of students that we serve it's about 20 kids in each class, and out of those 20, I might have 17 different mother languages being spoken and wow. you know, 12 different countries. It's yeah. really, really a mix. The community is very high-functioning. We serve a population mostly of residential citizens, I guess I would say. So not necessarily we have a, a large population of Indonesian citizens, yes, uh-huh. but the expats that do go to our school, I would say they are they are residents. They have mm. cafes here, they have jobs here, they're here long term. Um, we don't have very many students anymore that aren't here for at least two or three years. We used to have, you know, it used to be much more transient than it is. There's another school in in the area that serves more modern Western you know, expats here for a year. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of people have mentioned green school. So that's the other big one here in Ubud. Yeah. So we've, it's so interesting because, you know, stay wild is really for everyone out there listening, but we, we are, I am based in Ubud. So it's interesting talking to people that, that live here and their experience of, you know, the functionality of living here when they have kids that go to school here or, you know, if they are a teacher working at a school and you get into that daily life of it. So it's, it's really interesting because, you know, there is transientness, but Mm -hmm. then as the, as the economy of Ubud has grown, because Eat, Pray, Love, the book and the movie really kind of put us on the map. Yes, they did. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> for better or worse. For better or worse. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, you know, the Julia Roberts movie was filmed here and the, and Elizabeth Gilbert came and wrote the book here more than 10 years ago. Um, but because of that, the wellness industry has really developed here. It's always kind of been the seed of Balinese culture. Um, but as that wellness industry developed and the economy around it developed, things that are, you know, in terms of the daily life and functionality have also developed like schools, Mm -hmm. like restaurants, um, that aren't Balinese, Mm -hmm. like retail, yeah, like retail, um, like doctor's clinics, exactly. professionals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's, there's a group that have come and never looked back, you know, and, and they're just here for the long haul. Yeah. And then there's a group of Westerners who keep, they retain their jobs, their Mm -hmm. Western jobs, but they come for a long-term experience a year, two years, and then they're back home again. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and Palangi doesn't, we don't have a lot of those families. We have some, but m- more of our families are really have more roots. Yeah. 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 They're really those, you know, yeah. came here a long, long time ago. Term. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well, we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk more about the social emotional learning that Bryn's doing, some exciting things she has coming up and uh, yeah, some tips you might have. All right. Stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. I'm a singer, songwriter, my music is featured here on the podcast, and I draw an original Daily Doodle cartoon every day, which you can see on my website and Instagram 
And I also have shirts of some of them as well. So check out all my shenanigans at NJ Loves. That's NJ like Norma Jean, NJLoves.com. If you like the show, please subscribe, subscribe, become one of our subscribers, share the podcast, write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. So Stay Wild is really kind of a homegrown effort at this point. And I hope that you're all enjoying it and sharing it. And we're really in this together. So back to the show. All right, little humans, we're back here with Bryn Obeid. Hi, Bryn. Hi. So we are talking about your expat journey. We got into that. We got into a lot of um, expat, third culture, cross culture. Um, and now I want to talk a little bit about social, emotional learning. Social mosh. Social mosh. <laughs> oh, that's going to be my hashtag now. <laughs> hashtag. Hashtag social mosh. Um, so talk a little bit about what that is. At the beginning, you kind of touched on it in terms of coping skills and communication and how do you start down that path? Yeah, well, social emotional learning is is really all about just giving, making the content more accessible for children because their foundation in life is okay. Mm. And you can't learn if you're not okay in the classroom, whatever that means. Whether that's because you're not getting enough food at home, you can't have breakfast in the morning because of your family's financial situation, or you're dealing with something at home, a divorce or some stress mm. or something like that. And if, if you're not feeling safe, if you're not in a healthy environment, then the content just doesn't have any meaning. You have to be okay first. The content of the actual education, actual education okay. academic lessons. Like, like math. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like you, you're not going to yeah. understand math if you don't get breakfast or if you are screamed at by your parents or if exactly. there's abuse or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If you're being bullied, like who cares about grammar and punctuation if right. you're terrified what's going to happen at lunchtime in an hour? Right. Um, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right. Or if you're still upset about something that happened the night before online, yeah. you know, yeah. the cyber situation. Yeah. Cyber bullying. That's a thing. You know, my Big goodness. Yeah. yeah. So social emotional learning is about giving children a way to communicate their feelings, adapt, cope, mm -hmm. uh, and communicate in healthy ways. Okay. And it's something that the, the teacher has to set up in their own classroom so that the students all have the same language mm -hmm. throughout the school. Hopefully a school will buy into it. Okay. And then as the children grow and progress, the topics of the SEL lessons change okay. to suit their, their level of, of being, their maturity. Okay. So when you're talking about having the same language, it's saying that terms mean the same thing, right? Yes. So like in the beginning, I just want to touch on this really quickly. You talked about bullying versus a mean moment. Yes. What is a mean moment? Okay. <laughs> like, so what's up with that? There what's was that? this overused term in schools about bullying right? and right. people abuse the word. And yeah. I, I got really sick of hearing this broken record of he or she is bullying. Kind of lost its meaning. Yeah, exactly. And I said, okay, listen, there's the difference between being rude, being mean and being a bully. Mm, okay. Yeah. So if someone says something rude, like perhaps we all know this in Ubud, you come in and before we had good salons, the haircuts in this town were <laughs> interesting, especially for the boys who needed actual like structure and style to their hair. So if somebody made a joke and it was probably a little bit rude or just wasn't, you know, right. gracious, right. I would say, you know, that's a rude moment if mm. it hurt the, the kid's feeling or if they had crossed the line in some way. Um, and then there's a mean moment mm -hmm. where a child you know, somebody asks to share something and someone says no, or they say, you can't sit with me today. Or they say something like, I don't like you. You know, they just, they're children. So they have these moments of, yeah. you know, pushback and that's a mean moment. Okay. And it might hurt somebody's feelings. Perhaps there's even tears, but that's not bullying. You know, bullying is everyday consistent targeting of one person to the point where they feel threatened or compromised. Okay. So it, the environment doesn't become safe anymore. And bullying can happen at school. It can happen in like recreational, yeah. you know, facility environment, yeah. or it can happen at home. Right. Or online. Yeah. Or online. You know, it could be any of these people. Some, yeah. some people are bullied by their own parents or their own family members, yeah. you know, where people have to intervene. So um, bullying is, is 
targeted, consistent, and threatening. Okay. okay. So once once that threat is there and it's a consistent threat, it's not like, hey, I'm going to hit you. Hey, teacher. And then you resolve it. That's not bullying. Now, that's a mean moment. That's a mean right? moment where so, you're like, okay, guys, let's let's rein it in. Right. Okay. Right. Because, I mean, you know, kids get into into toughs, you mm. know, and they'll come in. They some, you know, they're fighting over a ball and one kid hits another kid. And then the parent comes to me the next day and says, my son said he was hit at the playground there. He's being bullied. No, your son had a conflict with another student and they hit and that's not acceptable, but that's a mean moment. Right. Okay. Right. There's not a consistent threatening. Yeah. Yeah. But bullying is focused, laser focused on one person every day, either taking something, money, lunch, or compromising their safety. I'm going to hit you if you don't. Right. Right. And it's not just physical safety. It's not. It can be emotional safety, social safety. Yes. All those things. Yes, and that usually comes in when the children are a little older. Yeah. Um, and they start attacking them personally mm-hmm. versus just, like, on the playground or something. Yeah. Um, so then they say, like, things like, oh, I think your haircut's ugly or, you know, whatever. And that's that's bullying as well. And that's, you know, that has those emotional consequences. Yeah. Versus a physical threat, you know? Yeah, So absolutely. it changes as they get older. But in the school, if a school adopts a social-emotional learning curriculum, hopefully they introduce a vocabulary of terms to the children when they're quite young. Mm. And then as they go through their years, mm. you can use this vocabulary, but it applies to different situations. That That's changes cool. as they get older. And you can say things like, well, a peace builder wouldn't do that. And if you're using the peace builder program in your school, everybody from six years old to 16 years old knows what that means. What's a peace builder? Oh, peace builders. Just, there's a, there's a program out there um, called the peace builders program. Some schools use, and it's a pledge and there's like eight different pledges that you make. They say things like I pledge to praise people, to give up, put downs, to right wrongs, to build peace at home, at school and in my community. And, and then every year we dissect at a age appropriate level what that means. Okay, cool. And you can refer to that pledge all year long. So you said, you know, excuse me, little Robbie, we pledge to give up put downs as a peace builder. And what you said today, you know, goes against our pledge. So how can you help right. make this better? You know? Okay, right. Like, how can you remember that pledge you made in terms of being a peace builder to move forward? Exactly. Cool. So what are some of those terms apart from the peace builder program that people use in terms of not just positive terms, but in terms of being on the same playing field? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'd say that the terminology that's used is different for all these different curriculums. And Mm -hmm. there are so many different curriculums out there right now. You know, there's the ruler curriculum that's developed at Yale University's Center of Social Emotional Intelligence. Mark Brackett is the, I would say, the founding professional for that. Mm Mm-hmm. Curriculum, and then there's something called responsive classroom. This is very, which is very popular in the U.S. Responsive classroom. Yes, responsive. (laughs) There's something called um, second step, which just recently put out an extension to their curriculum for middle school. So they extended it from the early years learning and and elementary school into the middle school, and they'll they'll make a secondary. I'm sure. Okay. And on and on on, and there are you know, eight that are being used right and they all have different vocabulary. Mm. But I think a common thread that runs through is empathy. Mm. Um, so there's different vocabulary and activities that go on to teach the children empathy, um, teaching how them how to resolve conflicts peacefully and how to cope with extreme stress. One of my um, peaceful resolution activities that we did this year is to employ something called a peace path which I got mm. from an organization called The Soul Shop. The Soul Shop. Based out of California. I was, oh. I was in a social-emotional learning class online through Rutgers University, and mm-hmm. one of my classmates worked for Soul Shop. Mm-hmm. And I, I was curious about what she did, and their organization employs a peace path where if two children get in a fight on the playground, mm-hmm. or for anything really, um, you bring them over to the peace path, and there's like a script that you go through each of these steps. It almost looks like a hopscotch Okay. Um, type situation. So it's and physical as well. Turns. Yeah, it's okay. physical as well. And that helps the younger students go through the Process. conversation because mm-hmm. there's prompts on each of the blocks that you're standing on. Okay. So you say, what happened for you, Norma Jean? And you explain your side. And then what happened for me? And then um, what, what do you want me to do? What would make it better? And then I say, what would make it better? And then we go... We step down each block as we go down the peace path. And at the end, we shake hands. And I'm not saying it works for every situation, mm. but it helps the dialogue. Yeah, it absolutely. Facil- it helps facilitate the dialogue. for Absolutely. Because I'm about 30 and, and growing up, for m- most people that I know, 
empathy wasn't really something that was taught in schools. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, well, you know, you should be a good person, but there wasn't a lot of instruction around that. Yeah. So it's so interesting when you're talking about teaching empathy. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, what exactly does that mean? It really means bringing awareness Mm. to the children about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Okay. And younger children, especially, like, I've been teaching grades three and four recently, and I've noticed that the grade threes really have a harder time with that, and the grade fours are much more clear. And so that one or two years difference in the child's development development. is absolutely imperative, but we still talk about it in grade three because there are still things that they can understand. Walking a mile in someone else's shoes, putting yourself in that situation and thinking, how would I feel if I was the other person right now? And one of the conversations that we had this year that was really eye-opening for me was um, bystander behavior. Because as a young person, everyone understands how to, what it feels like to be like the, uh, the perpetrator victim. or the victim. Yeah, like yeah. I don't want to use the word victim, but the, you know, the person on the receiving end of criticism mm-hmm. versus the person handing out the criticism. Everyone knows that. Right. But as the children get a little bit older, you're like bystander behavior. It's much more common to be the bystander than yes. it is to be direct in conflict. And children just don't know what to say or do. Hey, adults don't know what to say or do. Yes. And in this culture of like terrorism and cultural aggression and, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the political climate that we're experiencing in some of the more major countries in our world right now, bystander behavior, man. If you see someone being targeted, what are you going to do? So we work on the children with planning now Mm. what they can do, four things they can do and say as a bystander to refuse uh, an uncomfortable situation or diffuse an uncomfortable situation or um, to actually help their peers resolve Ah. an uncomfortable situation. What are those four things? Yeah. I mean, one of those things is to uh, accommodate, which means, yeah, you know, if someone's interrupting someone's play on the, on, in school, for example, or if it's their turn and someone's mm. just not giving up, to actually go over to your friend and say, I think it's, you know, speak up. Right. I think it's their turn. I think it's their turn, man. Come on, let's go. There's also compromise. Well, let's both, how about you pretend to be this guy and we'll pretend to be this team right. and we can both use these monkey bars, but we'll we'll create a game that where we can use right, them together. Where everyone works together. Compromise. Okay. Then there's um, distraction, you know. <laughs> um, hey, we're done. Let's go get an icy pop. I think we're done here anyway. Yeah. You know, and like maybe they'll be like, oh, okay, there's something shiny over there. Yeah. And then it just kind of diffuses the situation. I don't mm-hmm. recommend that. I mean, there's more to be learned from the other steps, but that yeah. works. And then there's the seek help situation. Yeah. Where this is obviously bigger than what any bystander can control themselves. Right. We need help. So in the school-age children, that help might be a teacher mm-hmm. or a parent. Mm-hmm. And as you get older, that helps look, help looks like something different. So we talk about those as the kids get older. And when you're young, going through those steps of, of bystander behavior looks like playground, you know, resolution mm-hmm. and fighting with your siblings. Yeah. And then you get older and it applies to risk behavior like drugs, alcohol, and sex. Right. You know, if okay. you think about what you want before you're in that situation, you are much, much better prepared to right. make a good decision when you're presented with something. Right. Or if you've, if you've talked it out first. Exactly. Role play, art, you know, talking about through art, doing, you know, writing out the steps or creating a poster in your classroom about what you can do and say. Yeah. And then all of a sudden someone pulls out a cigarette and hands it to you and you're 11 years old or 12 years old. You know what to do or say, whereas before it's like, I'm not sure I'm on autopilot. There goes my hand. It's reaching. Right. I'm not really and sure what I should do. Yeah. And things like that kick in. Exactly. And the situation develops before you even know what you're doing. Right. So and it's, it's knowing those triggers or preparing, preparing people for those triggers before they actually come up. Exactly. That's so interesting. So as adults, mm-hmm. what are some things that we can take from that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I think self-awareness. Like, what's helpful for us? Right. For us. Self-awareness. I mean, what's your bystander behavior? Mm-hmm. If you're on a subway in New York City and you see um, someone from a different ethnic group or religion being targeted, are you prepared to do or say something that feels comfortable to you? Mm. And and think about that. Think about that now. Yeah. Think and about today, that before you're on the subway. Exactly. Knowing the risks that are involved. We all know those stories. There's a popular story in America right now that a bystander, you know, was a hero and then ended up 
compromising their own life for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that every situation will come to that. No, but, but know your values in know advance. Your, know what you're going to do. You know, know what you can do or say. And if something looks like it's escalating, do you know the resources in your own towns and cities where you can call or email in and say, Hey, mm. this happened, and I think we should address this in our community. Right. And it's not just call the cops, right? No, it's not just call the fire not. department. Sometimes no. it's called social services. Yes. Sometimes it's not, you know, who do we tell, but how do we help? What resources are there? Yes, community. So are there resources. clothing drives? Is there a food bank? Like what what are the what are the things that are gonna help the situation move forward positively? Yes. Who are the allies of this group? Is there is there uh, a resource in the community at a center or something where there are allies where people will know how to address the situation better than me? Mm. Um, as adults, that's very important. And learning about your own boundaries and how to communicate people without letting your triggers take over. Mm. Um, especially if you're going to be an expat. This is a Stay Wild podcast. And yeah. if you're traveling internationally and somebody does something that's uncouth and you're feeling uncomfortable they've crossed the boundary instead of turning around and really laying into someone or telling them how wrong they are which isn't going to be well received no you know can do you have a coping mechanism that will help you stay calm and explain your position that Mm. will most likely resolve in a compromise instead of a conflict yeah it's so interesting those cultural taboos you know i mean there's always like the famous ones about in japan it's okay to slurp your noodles whereas in america it's like really that would be right in the west it's very rude but there's there's lots of little things um and it's so interesting because as someone who's living in a culture that they're not from or that they're not inherently born into Mm -hmm. uh there's all these little things that you don't notice that you have to be super sensitive to yes yeah. And so it's, it's, I guess you're right. It's one of those things where for a lot of people that are living, I guess, first culture versus third culture, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're living with parents from their culture in their family, in their community. And it's, and it's very much the same. Mm-hmm. You're not, it's, you're not confronted with that. Not as often. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because a lot of people don't have those experiences until they're an adult, yes. until they're older, until they're, you know, traveling on their own or backpacking through Europe or studying abroad or whatever. So it's so interesting because as adults, those things are also really relevant. Yes, they are. And they're relevant even if you are living in your own hometown and, and within your comfort zone. Mm. Um, it's just that the triggers are smaller. Mm. So instead of them being culturally driven, it'll be boundaries. Like, I don't like it when somebody comes into my office without knocking and asks me for things. I prefer that you make an appointment. You know, people in their own professional lives, mm. they put up boundaries and they don't, they don't like it when people cross them. Um, it's right, like call before you issue. come over to my house. Exactly. There's always like the best friend that drops in, which is great. But then you have the acquaintance that drops in and you're like, could you call first? Right. So instead of being. That's so interesting. So instead of being triggered and saying and yelling at someone or saying, you know, I asked you to call and you didn't call, can you just be self-aware at to the point where you just explain your position mm. so that you it winds up in compromise instead of conflict as we can all practice this. And you may not have a teacher standing at the head, you know, in, in your family room being mm. like, so let's make a poster about... Right, let's get know, on the peace path. Yeah, four <laughs> things. Yeah, that Jump you on can that do, path. Right. words that you can use to feel better about this, and let's take it on the peace path. Like, no, not at that point in our lives. Mm. But everyone needs coping strategies for the triggers in their life, small mm. or big. And whether you're walking into a sensitive cultural situation or you're just dealing with your own family members, Mm. this is relevant. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important to, to have those resources. So as adults or for people who are out there listening, wild listeners, little humans, um, what are some places where adults can get those resources? Mm, Yeah. Um, you know, adults, I find that the best places for adults to get these resources are through their own local workshops, people just drawing Mm -hmm. attention to being, um, Mm self-aware community centers like the YMCA, for example, that everyone knows in America. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, to use that as, as one example, they have different resources there. They have trauma management. They've got counselors. Mm-hmm. They have um, health and nutritionists and specialists that are there. Mm-hmm. And these people that are offering these services in their specialized areas, mm-hmm. they'll give you things that you can use to cope with whatever is not balanced in your life. Mm-hmm. So start there. Mm-hmm. Start with a life coach or start with a nutritionist or start with a personal trainer or start with a trauma center yeah. um, and address whatever it is that's triggering you in the moment mm. and then just expand it to include, you know, the the macro viewpoint on your life and your surroundings and that's where people are getting the juicy stuff. And that's why retreats and, and self-care is 
so popular now. Self-care is the jam. Yeah, it's the jam. It's because people are realizing. Self-care is the jam. Once you feel better, you react better to other people. You're more balanced. You can be your best self so you don't fly off the handle. Yes. Um, So in terms of self-care, I always like to ask, what are some things that you do? Oh, yes. Well, I definitely found that some of my methods to... I guess creating balance in my own life mm. is, and this is so nerdy, but research. Yeah. I love finding something that's bothering me in my life and mm. then finding the community that's also interested in that okay. and reading articles and publications and yeah. finding, you know, little groups of people that are talking about it and sharing their experiences. And I connect with those um, little microcosms and communities around, which is how I, this is what I did when I got into social emotional learning. Exactly. You know, exactly. I, w- I went into the academia of it and then mm-hmm. I found a community. And that seems mm. to be my inroad most of the time. I also so kind of geek out. <laughs> I geek out. I'm the same. I totally geek out. Yeah. You know, finding the podcast, finding the publications, mm. the magazine publications or online right. articles or to have the resources to move forward. Resource it. Yes, mm. absolutely. I go directly, directly. Mm. But you know, I know people that go through, they find balance through, um, through physical practices, things mm. like yoga or Pilates or ecstatic dance. Kind of running or riding a bike or going for a yes, walk. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and then there are the writers and the artists, you mm. know, morning pages where I'm, I'm dealing with this through my art and this is how yeah. I'm getting through and I'm finding balance through that. Good mm. for you, man. But Good for you. Identify with whatever it is mm. um, and then do it. That's what everybody Yeah, says. let it this out. Is not, yeah, this is not rocket science. This yeah. is just actually doing it. It's, it's dealing with the feels. Yeah. Deal with the feels. Deal with the feels. Deal with the feels. And try not to, like, take everyone down with you. Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, if you're going down, like, save yourself, but, like, don't pull everybody else down. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the resourcing and really geeking out yeah. on what you're interested in, this has kind of led you on a life path, which yes. is pretty cool. So yes. talk to us a little bit about what you're doing next and, and the exciting transition that you're on. Yeah. So, um, I decided that social emotional learning is my focus and my future. This is how you found your thing. This is how I found my passion people. So, you know, you can criticize the geeks, mm. but man, right. it really, it put me down the, the straight and narrow. I found a calling. Mm. And so I've been seeking out um, centers and universities and things that will allow me to be who I want to be and support that. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't find a lot of universities that have SEL departments yet Mm -hmm. because it's kind of a marriage between psychology and education. Mm -hmm. And so you're either going to one or the other, but there's no, there's no marriage, but usually it it comes up when there's an issue or how to better deal with academics instead of being its own focus. Yes. Or yeah. 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 And there's just discipline. Yeah. yeah, And there's two different ways they're looking at SELs. There's two different ways to approach it. You approach it from the psychology center or you approach it from the educational Mm. point of view, but where's, you know, where's the, the merch a few universities have mm-hmm. something along those lines. As I mentioned before, Yale has a center for social emotional intelligence that I just absolutely adore. That's Harvard cool. has something going on. Those Ivy Leagues are always and on the forefront. I know. Oh Penn, man. Stanford. So I'm like, so basically the universities <laughs> for my master's degree are Stanford, Harvard, Yale, and Penn and Harvard. Fancy. Great. That's Fancy. Not, that's not intimidating at all. It's um, all that endowment money. Yes. <laughs> I settled on a program that was really compatible with my lifestyle mm. of traveling, being an expat, working, but mm-hmm. also going back and being really well supported in the area of social emotional learning. So in September, I'm starting a master's degree in teaching and learning with a focus on SEL at the University of Oxford in London. That's exciting. Yes. Cheerio, London Cheerio. town. That was horrible for all you British people. Sorry about that. <laughs> I apologize in advance. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good time. So it's interesting because one of those things that where you were in the classroom, you saw the need, you were like, okay, my own self-care practice of dealing with this is going to is going to be to geek out and find out how to move forward. Yeah. And then you found your thing. And I found my thing. And originally I wanted to stay in Ubud and finish my master's degree at Oxford and continue teaching at Polanyi school. Mm-hmm. Um, my rainbow school, my rainbow tribe. Polanyi means rainbow Polanyi in Bahasa Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And we are truly a rainbow of people. Mm. But, you know, the opportunities in Southeast Asia for professional development, especially Mm. in a new area, are few and far between. Mm. Nor do we really have the resources to sink into that. Yeah, it's not not on the forefront of 
of a lot of industries. Right. It's more of a lifestyle. Yeah. So I'm going to head back um, to the West and um, affiliate with a school or university that have these studies on schools that have one or more curriculums in place now mm. where I can use the classroom as a laboratory to see these things in action and then uh, take off in my own, you know, I guess just develop my own flavor and, my, and do my own research in that yeah, exactly. area. Exactly. Use all your own experience. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Super exciting. Well, Bryn, thank, thank you, you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Norma Jean. This was fabulous. <laughs> all right, little humans, big thanks to Bryn Obeyed for coming on the show. Uh, here's today's toast poem. It's about self-love. So it's another original poem written by me, and I hope you like it. Here we go. I went to bed dreaming of you and woke up loving myself. Every inch of fragile skin, every crevice, every bone, wholly of itself, unneeding of anyone a complete universe. All right, little humans, that's today's show. Big thanks again for Bryn Obeid coming on the show, talking about social emotional learning. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. Please subscribe, follow the show, Download the episodes, share with your friends, and write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. Today's episode was brought to you by me, Norma Jean. I'm a singer, songwriter, and I draw original Daily Doodle cartoons. You can see all my shenanigans on my website, njloves, that's NJ like Norma Jean, loves.com. Until next time, little humans, stay wild. So we keep on keeping on.